Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. We have a short announcement before we begin today. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries waits for your participation for a listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address during the next week or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for the paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona, 85029. This survey ends on November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. Today, I want to talk to you about what happened during a certain graduation ceremony at Harvard University. The person giving the congratulatory speech was someone that attended Harvard, but left the university before graduating. Isn't that surprising? Having someone make a speech at graduation when they dropped out of that school. The person making the congratulatory speech was no other than the CEO of the social network Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg. Even though he was not able to graduate from Harvard, they invited him to speak at the graduation because he has changed the history of social networking in the world. He was asked to give a speech to the graduates to challenge them as they enter the real world. There were some words that Mark Zuckerberg said during his speech that moved and challenged me as well. Mark Zuckerberg recalled a story of President John F. Kennedy when he visited the NASA space station during his speech. While President Kennedy and his people were walking around NASA, a building custodian happened to pass by the president holding a broom. That surprised the president and made him stop right there. President Kennedy looked at the custodian with interest and introduced himself and asked him a question. He said, Hello, I am President Kennedy. Can I ask what you are doing right now? What do you all think the custodian answered? If you were the custodian, what would you say to the president? If I was the custodian, I probably would have said, I'm so sorry, President Kennedy. I didn't notice you and your group walking by. Sorry that I got in your way. But the custodian actually said to President Kennedy, Well, Mr. President, I am helping to put a man on the moon. I'm sure that the custodian's answer to the president's question gave a new perspective to a lot of people, including me. In the eyes of people in the world who judge others by their careers, they may have found the answer funny and laughed at the man. They may have said, what does he mean he is helping to send a man to the moon when he is only a custodian? However, the custodian knew and believed that he was contributing to sending a man to the moon with the work that he was doing at NASA. The only way that NASA was able to send a man to the moon was because all the people at NASA did their assigned jobs well, including the custodian. 
he was sure of both his identity and calling at NASA. that believe that ministry work is done only by special missionaries. They believe that it requires a lot of education, studying, and intelligence. They believe that one has to have the ability to do ministry work, but is that really true? If God worked this way in His ministry, then the Bible would only be filled with elite, highly educated people. Also, We would go to church every Sunday and hear from the podium that we must follow these elite people and try our best. However, when you read the Bible, you can see that it's actually the opposite. God does not use the wise, intelligent, and elite people to do His work. He actually does His work through people that are weak with no education. And if God uses someone that is powerful, He does not fulfill His work through them while they still have their strength. God fulfills His plans through them when they are the weakest and not able to stand alone. God does not use people for their strength or intelligence. God uses people simply as a tool to show His power and His strength to the world. God called upon Abraham from Chaldea Ur, who did not have any special strengths, and gave him a son at the age of a hundred, and used him to fulfill his plans. 
God used Moses, who was well educated from Egypt, but he only uses Moses after he runs away to the wilderness, having lost all of his pride at the age of 80. It is the same with David. God did not use him until he lost his strength, was running away from King Saul, and was met with much hardship. He had nowhere to turn but to God and ask for salvation. That is when God used David for his plans and made him king. Jesus called on fishermen to become his disciples. Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 that God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. And verse 29 tells us that as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad
harmonious joy. With cherubim and seraphim harmonious joy, gladly for a Coming up next is sermon by David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Greater Works, based on John chapter 5 verses 16 through 29. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 16. Let me give you the heads up of what leads up into this passage so you get the context. In the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus visits a place called the Pool of Bethesda where, where a man who's lame, who's been lame for 38 years, hasn't been able to walk, is sitting there. And he goes up to the man and he says, take up your bed and walk. And the man does. 38 years of being lame, he's able to rise up and walk. And so he's walking around and some Jewish religious leaders come up to him and say, well, why are you carrying your bed? Because Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. And so they come up to him and say, why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to do that. And the guy looks back at them and says, well, the teacher over there told me to carry my bed. And and by the way, do you see I could walk? This is big. They could care less about that. You shouldn't be carrying your bed. And then they get mad at Jesus for healing this man on the Sabbath. That leads into the conversation in verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, what I want to show you hidden away in this defense of Jesus' deity before Jewish religious leaders is an astounding picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So the Bible teaches that God is one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not a contradiction, but a mystery of how the Trinity works. So you have one God revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. And what we're seeing here in John chapter 5 is a window into the way the Son, God the Son, relates to the Father, God the Father. And what I want to do is I want to show you this, how this has huge implications for the way we understand our own lives when it comes to sharing the gospel. 
Follow with me. Six truths here. We're going to walk through them pretty quickly based on John 5. First, Jesus knew that God the Father was working. So verse 17, rulers are saying, why are you working on the Sabbath? He says, my Father is working. Even on the Sabbath, the day of rest, clearly God's working. On the Sabbath, yes, God rested, but at the same time, God is always sustaining the universe. And God is always working, seeking after his people. Ever since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, God has been seeking after sinners, restoring people to himself. So Jesus says, my father's working, so I too am working. In other words, I'm simply doing what the father is doing. Follow this. Jesus' work on the earth was never, ever self-initiated. The father prompted, initiated everything that the son did. So Jesus knew the Father was working, which leads to the second truth. Jesus knew that apart from the Father, he could do nothing. In verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Nothing. What a statement for the Son of God to say that he's totally dependent on God the Father. And this is emphasized over and over again in the book of John. Even right after the passage we just read, and you get to verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. Nothing. Don't miss this. This is huge. Jesus' work was totally dependent on the Father's work. The Son never once acted independently from the Father. He did nothing, could do nothing in himself, by himself. He was totally dependent on the Father. So how did that work? Third truth. Jesus looked and listened to know where and how the Father was working. So the last part of verse 19. Jesus says, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Only what he sees the Father doing. Verse 20 says, The Father shows Jesus all that he is doing. So what you've got is this picture of Jesus looking and listening to see how and where God the Father is working. And we see illustrations of that throughout the Gospels. Jesus, when he comes to a town in Samaria and his disciples are headed into town, he veers off onto the outskirts of town where he spends time with an outcast woman from that town who the Father is drawing to himself. And he shares with this outcast woman news of living water that will satisfy her soul. It's Jesus walking through a crowd of people, all kinds of people crowding around him. And all of a sudden, he stops in the middle of this crowd and he says, somebody touched my clothes. And the disciples are like, well, all kinds of people did. You're surrounded by people. And he turns around to a woman who the father is clearly drawing to himself, birthing faith in this woman. And he turns and looks at her and he says, your faith has healed you. Jesus is walking down a road with a crowd of people and he looks up in a tree and he sees a wee little man named Zacchaeus. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. You're going to my house today. So the whole picture is, Jesus in constant tune with the Father. Even early in this chapter, when he goes to the pool of Bethesda, where nobody else would go to hang out with the lame, he goes to this particular man. Jesus is doing what he sees the Father doing. His whole life, his whole ministry, is a response to what he observes the Father doing around him, which leads to the fourth truth. Jesus joined the Father wherever and however he was working. Into verse 19, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So right before this, in John chapter 4, Jesus told his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What sustains me on a daily basis is doing the Father's work. He says in John chapter 12, verse 50, I say what the Father tells me to say. He says in John chapter 15, verse 10, I do what the Father tells me to do. Whatever the Father says to do, Jesus does. Whatever the Father says to say, Jesus says. Maybe most clear in John chapter 12, when Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, and he says, What shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, it's for this very purpose that I came to this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. Not my will, but yours be done. And he walks a road to a cross. Jesus joined the Father wherever and however he was working, even if it meant the sacrifice of his life. But even in that, don't misunderstand. Fifth truth, Jesus knew that the Father involved him in his work because the Father loved him. Verse 20, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and shows him 
all that he himself is doing. See this intimacy here. When we think about the love of God, we often think about the love of God the Father for the world. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But don't miss it. Even hiding behind that love is a love between the Father and the Son. A love from the Father for the Son. The word here, the Father loves the Son. The word there is phileo. It's a friendship kind of love. And it's evident throughout John. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 57, I live because of the Father. He says in John chapter 8, verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. See the intimacy here. The Father shows his love for the Son by disclosing himself fully to the Son. This is not a relationship between a master and a slave or an employer and employee, but a a Father and a Son working together, united together by love in the Godhead. This is a mysterious, beautiful relationship. And it all leads to the sixth truth. Jesus knew that the Father's work in him had eternal ramifications. Jesus goes on in the rest of what we read to talk about how the Father raises the dead and gives life. How the Father has appointed the Son to be the judge of all. And whoever hears the words of Jesus, the Son, and believes them has eternal life. Whoever does not hear, does not believe, obey the words of the Son will experience eternal condemnation. Eternity, your eternity, my eternity rests on how we respond to the work of God the Father in God the Son. Jesus knew that the Father's work in him had eternal ramifications. Now, what I want to do, based on those six truths in this picture, we see of the work of the Father and the Son together. What I want to do is I want to draw a parallel, a correlation, between the work of the Father and the Son and the work of the Spirit in the Christian. And this may sound like a stretch at first, but when you realize what Jesus says later in the book of John, this relationship between the Father and Son has huge implications for us understanding the work of God's Spirit in our lives, particularly when it comes to sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. Let me show it to you. Look again at John chapter 5, verse 20. Let these words, these images, these phrases kind of be etched in your mind. John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works, greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Now, is there a place later in John where Jesus talks like that? There is. I want to show it to you. Turn with me over to John chapter 14. Start in verse 10, where Jesus is talking with His disciples before He goes to the cross. And He's talking with them in John 14, 15, and 16 about the Holy Spirit He's going to send into their lives. Let me make clear. I hope this is obvious. I'm obviously not saying that we relate to God the Father exactly like God the Son does. That's certainly not the case because we're not Jesus. We're not God. We're not a part of the Trinity. This is not me trying to add another fourth member here and But that's not not what I'm going for. So this is not heresy. So just hang with me here. Think about what we just read in John 5 and connect it with how Jesus talks about the Son, talks about the Spirit in the lives of the disciples starting in John 14. Look at John 14, verse 10. You'll notice here, he's basically recounting everything he just said in John 5. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Father does his work in me. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So the same things he's saying in John 5. But then listen to verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. My disciples will do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus says, I did the work of the Father here on earth, but you, my disciples... You're not just going to do the same work. You're going to do even greater works than what I did. Greater works than what Jesus did? 
Why would? How could Jesus make that statement? Well, listen to his reasoning. He says, I said this because I am going to the Father. Now, why is that so important? I'm glad you asked. Keep going down to verse 15. Because when the Son goes to the Father, then the Father will send the Spirit into the Christian's life. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 25, the same thing. These things have I spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Look at John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus says, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. You get into chapter 16, verse 5. Jesus says, now I'm going to him who sent me. I'm going to the Father. None of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Follow this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. One more time in in John 16 here. Look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. Well, he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. Same thing we saw with Jesus. I don't speak on my own authority. Whatever I hear from the Father, I speak. Same thing with the Spirit. Whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Listen to verse 15. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So follow the logic there in verse 15. All that the Father has belongs to Jesus. And Jesus is going to take all of that and give it to us through his spirit. And so Jesus is the one making a parallel here, a correlation between how he worked with the Father and how we will work with the Father and Son through the Spirit. Now, if you're still not convinced, if you think I'm a heretic, let me show you one more place. John chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus now is praying for his disciples. And not just these disciples who are right in front of him, but disciples of all time, including you and me. Listen to what he says in verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, or disciples in the days to come, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so the world may believe you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me. That's the Father in us, through the Spirit. That they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Do you see this? This relationship we saw in John 5, between God the Father and God the Son, is intended to be, designed to be, reflected and realized and experienced in our relationship with God the Father and the Son through His Spirit. They and us, Father, Father in Christ, Christ in us, through the Spirit. This whole picture here, clear parallels. And all of that for the purpose that the world might believe you sent me, for the purpose of the spread of the gospel, so more people might believe in Jesus. So, if that is all true, then this just turns upside down the way we understand sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ. If we're doing the same work that Jesus was doing, in the same way, not just even the same way, in greater ways, then that leads to six exhortations that I just want to put before you. That I pray you will apply tonight in your life that will affect your perspective when you wake up tomorrow morning. First exhortation, be aware. 
God is already at work in the lives of people around you. So Jesus said, my father's working, so I'm working. He's working. Do we believe our father is working in this community around us? Absolutely he is. He's not like sitting on the couch just watching. No, he's seeking sinners. He's drawing people to himself all around us. You know, one of the biggest obstacles we often face when it comes to sharing our faith, sharing the gospel, is thinking, man, I've got to find a way to create some conversation about Jesus. But remember, Jesus initiated nothing. He joined in what the Father was already doing around him. What if our task when it comes to sharing the gospel is not trying to manufacture something that's not already there, but it's actually joining in what the Father is already doing, is working around us? What if we knew that like Jesus knew that? I think about one particular time, and I've shared this, it's been a while, but one particular time in a city in India, there was about half Muslim, half Hindu, hardly any followers of Jesus, very little gospel presence at all. And we were there working with a gospel partner, and every night this gospel partner sent us out as a team, me and the others who were with me, We went out into this crowded park where a bunch of people in this city would gather together every night to hang out. And so we went out into that park. And the way our gospel partner put it is he he looked at us and he said, I believe that the Father is drawing people all across the city to himself. He's more passionate about these people coming to know Christ than any of us could ever be. And he's doing the work. He's, He's given some dreams and visions. He's causing questions in this person or that person's mind about this God or that God or the way they built their whole belief system. And he says to us, your goal tonight is to go out into that park and just find the people in whom God is working. And that simple exhortation just transformed my whole perspective. I walked into that park along with others every night, not thinking, all right, what can we make happen? Let's just try to see if we can find somebody who'll listen to anything we have to say. It was a confidence that said, the Father's doing something in the people in this park. So I'm going to find out where he's working. Now, we had some conversations with people that it was clear the Lord at that moment was not drawn to himself. I mean, just shutting down as soon as we start to share the gospel. And you know, sometimes we experience that when we share the gospel with somebody and they start to shut down immediately. And oftentimes we conclude, man, I'm just not going to try that again. That didn't work well at all. But what if we just realized, hey, maybe the Father's not working in that way in that person's life at that moment. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's not doing something in somebody else's life around you. This That's what I mean by transform your perspective. You go out to eat tonight after this worship gathering and you're sitting at a table in a restaurant. Could it be that the father is working in the life of that waiter or waitress who's going to come to your table? And he's actually set this up to where this waiter or waitress is going to come in contact with somebody who knows the gospel and has the spirit of Christ in them. And we're aware. Now I'm not saying I know for sure what waiter or waitress is doing this or that life, but... I remember I shared a few weeks ago, a pastor, friend of mine, I was speaking at a conference with, and he said, you want to know if God is working in the life of somebody who's around you? How do you know if God's working in their life? And kind of paused, and he said, you know he's working in their life simply by the fact that they're around you. That God, in his grace, has brought their path alongside somebody who knows the gospel and the spirit of Christ. And so, to look for opportunities then. To be aware. God's already at work in the lives of people around you. There's opportunities that are there. Think about a friend of mine. I'll, I'll call him Ben. That I've known for a while here in, in the city. And Ben knows that I'm a follower of Christ. And I hope that Ben has seen Christ in me. And one day, not long ago, we were having a conversation and we were talking about normal things and then all of a sudden Ben began to share a little bit about some things he was wrestling through in his life. And so I started thinking, Ben looked at him, I said, would you like to get together and talk about some of these things? Maybe we go to lunch sometime? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. So I could sense 
the Father's doing something here. Which leads to the second truth then. If I'd have been, go to lunch with me, knowing that I've got an opportunity now to join in what God is already doing, second thing, be available. God desires to include you in his work. God desires to include you in his work. Oh, there's this temptation. Whenever we have an opportunity to share the gospel, sometimes one of the first thoughts that comes into our mind is, man, I wish somebody, I wish that guy was here because he'd be perfect for sharing the gospel in this particular time because they'd know exactly what to say. Well, God knew what he was doing when he put you in this situation instead of that person that came to your mind. What if God has designed you to be involved in this work in that person's life? What if there's a reason he didn't put me or somebody else? That's the beauty. This goes back to John 14. Why Jesus said, you'll do even greater works than these? How could he say that? I mean, really? We're going to do greater works? Yes. Because it's not this relationship with the Father on one person. It's going to be this relationship with the Father through the Spirit among multitudes of people all over the world, all over the city. That's why we talk about how the way we as a church are going to most effectively lead people to Jesus is not by trying to get as many people into this building as possible to hear one person speak. No, that misses the point. The goal all is every week to send 4,000 people out of here filled with the Holy Spirit of God all across the city where God desires to include you in His work. And so when you think about tomorrow morning, you get up and you go into the office and you're sitting there in your cubicle. Just think, God's working in somebody's cubicle here. The Father's doing something. He's put me here for a reason. So I take Ben to lunch and we begin to talk about it. Various things in our lives and our families. And then we're going to talk about spiritual matters. He begins to share some real honest struggles he's having when it comes to his faith. Questions that he's got. And I begin to listen, which leads to the third exhortation. Be alert. Look and listen for evidence of God at work. Jesus looked and listened to see how, where God was working. You might wonder, well, how do we do that? I mean, how do we really hear God's voice? How do we hear what he's saying? How do, how do we know what God is doing? How do we see God's work? And this is where... It all comes back to relationship. I think about my family. I mean, my wife, Heather, calls me up on the phone. She doesn't say, hey, babe, this is Heather Platt. That would be weird. There's only one person who calls me and says, hey, babe. You don't have to identify yourself after that point. It's because of relationship. I know her voice, a relationship with her, quick identification. Think with me. When you know God's word, you'll recognize his voice. When you're walking in daily relationship with God, you recognize His work. This is where we realize that our time in the Word, our time in prayer, have everything to do with our time sharing the gospel. So tomorrow morning when you, when you get up and you spend some time just hearing from God, listening to the voice of God and His Word and praying and spending that time with Him. And then you finish that time and you say, Lord, as I go throughout this day, You pray, God, give me a sensitivity to how and where you're working. I know I don't have to initiate anything. I trust that you are already working and you've included me in your work. So help me to see, help me to hear what you are doing. You pray that. That's a prayer I guarantee God will answer. He wants to involve you in his work. He's designed you to be included in his work. So you go throughout the day and you hear people around you say, I'm really struggling with this or I feel bad because of, this happening. There's some conviction there. People say, I'm, I'm wondering why did this happen the way it did? I'm really afraid of this or that. And you hear things like that. What if those things are triggers that clue you into the, what God the Father is doing in different people's hearts and minds and lives? So Ben looks at me and he says, man, I don't know what it is, but I've just been wrestling with these questions about my faith. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know what it is. The Father's at work. 
And so now I'm responding to those questions. I say, well, Ben, you want to get together? We can get together you know, on a weekly basis if you want and dive into those questions and just kind of explore them. And he says, yeah, I'd really like to do that. Now that involves, at that point then, a total rearranging of my schedule, which is the fourth exhortation I want to give you. Be active. Sacrifice your agenda each day to join God wherever and however he is working. Now this is key, and it relates directly to what we were just talking about. When God shows you where he's at work, it's his invitation for you to join him at work. Remember Jesus, he joined the Father wherever, however he was working, even if that meant the sacrifice of his life. So this is where I want to encourage you then, follower of Jesus, to sacrifice your agenda on a daily basis, to be willing to reorient your life, your schedule, tomorrow, around what God is doing in the lives of people around you who don't know Christ. For some of us, this actually may mean rearranging our schedule to prioritize time with people who don't know Christ. For many Christians, we hang around Christians all the time. We've removed, we've extracted ourselves from non-Christian friendships. Many times in the name of holiness and in the process, we miss the whole point of what it means to follow Jesus in the world. If we're going to share the gospel with people who don't know Christ, we must have meaningful, real relationships with people who don't know Christ. This is a challenge for me as a pastor. I hang around with a lot of Christians. So I want to be intentional in my life about cultivating real relationships with people who don't know Christ. This is why I'm coached for the seven-year-old Cubs this year and five-year-old Orioles and, and trying to be intentional in these different ways. Sacrifice our agenda to join God wherever, how he was working. So so with Ben, and began to rearrange my schedule to say, all right, let's, let's meet together every week. And in the process, then on a weekly basis, we begin walking through some of his questions about his faith. In a strange way, I find myself growing in wonderful ways in my own faith, which leads to the next exhortation. Be amazed. Remember that God has involved you in his work, not because he needs you, but because he loves you. Oh, this is so huge. We need to remember that we have been given this task Not because God needs us, but because God loves us. You think about it. If God wanted to, he could write the gospel with clouds in the sky to draw people to himself. There are all kinds of means that the Father could use to draw people all around the world to himself. But instead of any of those other means, he's chosen to use you and me as the plan. Why has God chosen us? Here's why. Because He loves us. This is what I meant. I'm praying that we'll realize that this task of sharing the gospel with people who don't know Christ is for our good. We have an invitation from God the Father to be a part of his work in the world. I think about my son Caleb and Joshua. The other day we went and we got firewood and we brought it home and we're unloading. It was really cold outside so I get some gloves on. We didn't have any gloves. They're small enough for them so they put their baseball batting gloves on and, and they're out there with me with their jackets on. We're throwing firewood in the, in the wheelbarrow and, and then wheeling it over and putting it up and we're just having fun together. And they're saying, Daddy, this is great. Could I have done that on my own? Sure, I could have done a lot quicker on my own. I could have got inside to the warm much faster. But There's joy that comes in relationship. And just to think, the God of the universe enjoys relationship with us and has designed this process of his work in the world to involve us because he loves us. So I start meeting with Ben week after week after week and I find myself growing in communion with God, work with God as the Father is drawing Ben to himself, which leads to the last exhortation. Be assured, God's work in and through your life will bear fruit that will last forever. And so a little over a month ago, 
I'm sitting there with Ben. Well, we've walked through all kinds of questions. And it's not that every question has just been answered exhaustively or perfectly by any means. And we get to the point, and I just say, Ben, are, are you ready to become a follower of Jesus? Are you willing to turn from your sin and yourself and to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord? And Ben looks across the table at me and says, I'm definitely ready to do that. And Ben bows his head and he just calls out for God to save him from his sins. And I'm looking at my friend in front of me and right in front of my eyes, he goes from death to life. From a road that leads to an eternal hell to a road that leads to everlasting life in heaven. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm driving away with tears in my eyes, just thinking, is there anything more glorious that we get to be a part of than this? Is there anything more glorious that you could give your life to this week? More valuable, more important, more significant than seeing people that we love and care about brought from death to life through Christ. So I pray that in the weeks to come, as we think together practically about how to share the gospel in the fabric of our everyday conversations, that John fourteen twelve would become a reality among us, that there would indeed be all across our lives greater works than even what we see happening through the Son with the Father because we have the Spirit in us.
You can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is the program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello, and soul listeners. My name is Young in Winston, and you are listening to our program, The Goodness of the Gospel. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Winston. We have a one more session left of The Goodness of the Gospel. Yes, I can't believe it's already ending next week. So today and next week, we will be going over what we learned for the last 12 weeks. I think that will help us paint the whole picture more clearly. I hope so. In week one, we talked about in order for the good news to be good news, we learned that sad news has to come first. We talked about what that sad news was. That is why we began the series talking about the creation. Yes, first of all, we talked about our concept of time. We said that we do not live in the time of now. Yes, the moment we call now is already the past. That makes us living in the passing moments. We are humans living continuously in passing moments. However, God, who is the creator of time, is beyond time, and it cannot limit him. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Since he is beyond time, he does not predict the future, but he has already seen the end of time because every beginning and the end was formed within him. There is one point we need to think about. The God of creation is not limited by what he created. Time, space, every natural law, and more. Yes, 
I think that's very important to remember. Since I understood that concept, I also understand the reason why God created the universe. He had a precise purpose and plan, although he had already seen the end. Most people have a misunderstanding that God created the universe with His great vision, and yet Adam and Eve committed sin because they were tempted by a serpent. And since there was a problem to God's plan, He sought a way to save humanity and sent Jesus Christ to redeem it. However, this is not correct. God began everything, knowing everything that would happen. So let me ask you, what is God's ultimate plan? God's ultimate plan is to find His people that He can take to New Jerusalem, as it appears in the Book of Revelation. That's right. God's purpose for His creation is to take His loving people to everlasting New Jerusalem, where there is no existence of time. His purpose was not about this world. God is looking for His people in a finite time for the eternal world. This is why God created heaven and earth in the beginning. It was a God's desire to share the everlasting fellowship with Him, the abundant joy, happiness, and love of a fellowship. And the first step of that was creation. Yes, we also learn that the Hebrew word for "in the beginning" that appears in Genesis one one is Bereshit. Bera means a house. And we learn that was not a coincidence that it started with Bera. Yes, you cited it, a Jewish theologian. His interpretation said God began his story with a warehouse because he wanted to start preparing for his family who will live in his house. Right. God began his creation, knowing everything for his special purpose of gaining his people. If God knows everything and started His creation to gain His people, then is there anyone He forgot to save? No. Of course not. God does not lose any of His people. Yes, that is to say that anyone who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and accept God will all be saved. That's right. Because God knows everything, He knows who will respond and who will not to the message of the good news. He will not lose anyone who responds to the gospel. We have to remember this. Oftentimes, we forget and think it unfair for those who have not heard the gospel throughout their lives. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter eighteen, verse fourteen, "So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven." That one of these little ones perish. So it means that God will not let even the little ones to perish. It is not the will of God to lose even one soul among the souls to be saved. And God's will is always fulfilled. With this knowledge, we have looked at creation in Genesis. We learn how God created the first man and the purpose of God's creation, the Garden of Eden, and the relation. Between the Garden of Eden and sin, through Genesis chapters one through three. Yes, we talked about how man created in God's image was more than having his outer appearance, but 
resembling God's character unlike other creations. We also learn that man was created to govern other living things on behalf of God. These were the symbolic meanings that man was created in the image of God. That is why we talked about the meaning behind the naming. God called the light day, the darkness night, and expanse sky. I told you that a subject who gives names to others have the authority to govern them. That is why God gave Adam the authority to name all living creatures, and the Bible tells us the names Adam called became their names. There is a bigger meaning in naming something. Usually we think God's name is Jehovah, but God has many other names too. Yes, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Rapha, and more. Yes, there are many names for God, but what we have to remember is that these names describe God's nature. Jehovah Jireh, God who provides, Jehovah Shalom, God who is peace, and Jehovah Rapha, God who heals. You're right. They represent God's nature. There is a scene where Moses asks God's name at the place of the burning bush when he encounters God. God answered him, I am who I am. That sounds like Jehovah or Yahweh in Hebrews when translated. If we think more deeply, it sounds as if God is saying, I am me. Think carefully. Just as we said, those who are given names belong to the ones who give names. Adam gave names to the animals, which meant that the animals belonged to him. Man are given names by God, meaning that God governs man. However, who can give a name to God? If someone names God, then he rules over God. There is no one who can govern over God. No one can give a name to God because he is he. There is a, such a meaning. As I think of it, unlike God, every other God on earth were given names by men. Isn't it ironic? There are gods, but man gave them names. They are not true gods. Great secret is hidden in giving names. God created a man and gave him a name. This man gave names to every living creature that was created by God. This was the order and the right form of a governing. However, when sin entered the world, every order was ruined and broken. Yes, there were two trees in the middle of the Garden of Eden that were related to sin. What were they? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the garden. Yes, as we know, there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What were some of their characteristics? How does the Bible describe them? They bore fruits. They were good for food and pleasing to the eye. Yes, those fruits were good for food and pleasing to their eyes. And God allowed man to eat them freely. And as we have just shared, man has already received the power to rule over all creation in the image of God. 
In the circumstances where everything was perfect, God allowed Adam to eat the fruit of the tree of life, but forbid him to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God clearly told Adam that he will surely die when he eats the fruit. Yes, and we say these trees can be also referred to as the tree of life and the tree of death. But nevertheless, when the serpent tempted them, they realized the fruit seemed good for food and pleasing to the eye. Even though man was already created in the image of God, he was tempted, thinking he would become like God and ate the fruit of the tree of death. Eventually, man chose to listen to the word of serpent, not the word of the God. He chose death over life. Through the serpent and Eve, we found three definitions of sin. Do you remember? First, the original Hebrew word chata, meaning to miss the target or not reaching the standard. The second word aban, meaning to distort or iniquity. And the third word pesha, meaning to rebel or oppose. Yes, all three words appear in Genesis chapter three. When the serpent asks Eve, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" This shows Avon, where the serpent distorted the word of God when God told man to eat from any fruit except the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pesha was shown when the serpent opposed God's word. God said, "You will surely die after eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." But the serpent said, "You will not surely die." And lastly, we saw Hata when Eve ate the fruit because she listened to the serpent, although it was forbidden by God. All three words that describe sin happened in this sin. I told you that the moment sin entered the world, order reversed its course. The word that was delivered from God to Adam and Adam to Eve reversed as well, from serpent to Eve and from Eve to Adam. That is why we learn that the nature of sin is to go against God's nature. Through this incident, death came to us, and we learn that the biblical view of a death is a different. From the worldly view, yes, the worldly definition of death is the phenomenon where there is no life. But the biblical definition of death is separation, and this separation can be categorized into three distinct groups. Let's go over them again. First, separation is the separation of the soul and the flesh. The second is the separation from God. The day Adam and Eve. Ate the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of a good and evil. They were separate from God and were driven out from the Garden of Eden. And many years after, they received physical death, which is the separation of the spirit and the flesh. And that is why every descendant of Adam was born spiritually separated from God. Spiritual death. This concept can be seen in many places in the Bible. You were saved from death. The third separation is what the Book of Revelation describes as the second death, the eternal separation. We have to remember that there is a possibility to recover 
from the first and the second definitions of separation, but there is no way we can be restored from the second death, which appears in the book of Revelation. Correct. The first death came equally to every man who was a sinner. However, not everyone has to receive the second death. This is what God wants everyone to know. This is the gospel. Naturally, every mankind has to experience the first and the second death. However, there is a way we can avoid the second death. Yes, and this is the good news. If everyone experiencing the first and the second death was the sad news, then avoiding the second death is the good news. The more you realize how sad the first news is, the happier you will be when the second news comes to you. However, for those who do not realize the fact that they are sentenced to death, don't see the good news as the good news. Let's stop here for now and continue again next week. We have a talk about how God began His work of salvation from the creation to when sin entered the world. As we are going over those concepts briefly, it is easier for me to depict everything in my mind. Next time we will talk about how this power of sin and death changed to righteousness and life. Yes, I look forward to it, for it will really be good news. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Oh.
while spreading the gospel through our programs, there is something that I hear when I meet some of our listeners or volunteers. They thank me for my efforts in spreading the gospel. I am so thankful for these comments, and it gives me strength to continue in the ministry. But often, I want to ask all of them a question as well. Isn't what all of you are doing in the ministry part of spreading the gospel? Just like how a custodian working at NASA contributed to sending a man to the moon, members of a church that resembles the body of Christ are doing their part in spreading the gospel. The important thing is that we have the calling and that calling is engraved in our identity. A person sharing the words of God in front of the microphone is not the only person spreading the gospel. A person editing what is being recorded. A person adding music. A person burning the programs onto CDs. A person printing the cover on those CDs. A person placing the finished CDs into the envelopes. A person labeling the CDs a person counting and packaging the CDs, a person placing stamps on those packages, a person taking the packages to the post office, a person handling the packages at the post office, a person delivering the packages to the correct address, a person distributing the received CDs to others, a person delivering the CDs to different markets, a person praying for the ministry after listening to the programs, a person donating to the ministry after being moved by the programs, all of these people are doing their part to spread the gospel. It's not that we have the ability to do these things on our own. We are able to do these things because God has called us to do the work. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17 tells us, to only walk in the manner the Lord has assigned to each one of us, and as God called each one of us. Romans chapter 11 verse 29 tells us that God's gifts and His call can never be withdrawn. We must never think to ourselves, why me? Who am I to do this? Am I worthy? That's right. None of us are worthy enough to do all this. But, it is possible only because it is not us doing the work. God is fulfilling His work through us. I want to ask all of you, our listeners, do you know the calling that God has given to each one of you? Do you know why God has called you? All of you are God's children who have been bought with the precious blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. Our lives are not weak, lacking, or insignificant. You are all important enough to be bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. What will you all do with the life that you have been given? Won't you all listen to your calling and do what God has asked of you? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 to 22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself 
being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. To be made part of the dwelling place where God lives in the Spirit, we must all be joined together in Jesus Christ. That is the only way to be part of God's dwelling place. We must not look just at ourselves or our own abilities. We must listen carefully to God's calling. We must spread the gospel, having faith in what God can do through us. I want to leave you all with Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to meet all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me Oh, how He loves us, oh Oh, how He loves us
Sasa. 